Excellent. Okay. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James back in the saddle again. This is March 14th, I'm sorry, April 14th, uh, 2019. And uh, we're going to have back Pastor David Martins of South Africa. Are you with us, David? Good evening, Pastor Eli, and also good evening to our listeners across the globe. Yes, Pastor, I'm back. And uh, in spite of the sound problems we had earlier on during our test and uh, alignment for the show. Uh, we're running fine by uh, uh, by Yahweh's grace at the moment. Yes, very good. Yeah, yeah, I'm hearing you loud and clear. I know we've had problems uh, from your new location getting your uh, sound to be clear, but right now it's very clear and coming through very loud, okay? So what I'd like to do is pick up where we left off on the study of the roundtable groups that, uh, you know, where it was, uh, the b- baton was handed from Cecil Rhodes to other other people who were actually agents of the Rothschilds, okay? And uh, the right. author of the article, and I'll put this uh, in the chat room momentarily, but let me just read a couple of sentences here from the article. Justification... For the imperialistic conquest of South Africa was the ideology of the white man's burden, immortalized by Lord Rudyard Kipling. By the middle of the 1890s, Rhodes South African Holdings provided him with a personal income of a million pounds sterling a year, about $5 million. Rhodes was the founding father of the Secret Society. Kipling was one of its earliest members. The use of a racist national rationale to justify and gain support for the imperialist expansion into South Africa was one of the secret society's earliest psychopolitical operations. However, this deserves a, a huge caveat. The fact is that all of these societies that Rhodes and the other conspirators were involved in were unwritten by the Rothschilds, who were Jewish. Okay, so the reality is that these white men were actually fronts for Rothschild Incorporate, Incorporated. Your your comment at this point, uh, Pastor? Yes, um, something that we have mentioned so many times before. Um, if you read through uh, some of the annals of history, you will find that there is frequent reference to the fact that the Jews had already taken control of so much of the South African life, especially after the uh, formation of the Union of South Africa. And uh, then one asks oneself, uh, how did this happen? Where did they do this? And until you realize that the Cape Dutch Afrikaners are in fact of the same uh, uh, stock as the Jews, as the Edomites, and uh, of course, they have been uh, at this for 
uh, many years even before the formation of the Union of South Africa. Um, so it is uh, their modus operandi, pastors, that uh, the Jews always use or mostly use uh, whites as a front to their um, uh, ambiguous uh, and intransparent operations because they <laughs> don't like to be seen. Right. Right, yeah, they don't like to be seen, but they like to be heard, <laughs> right? They like to exactly. be heard, right? It's kind of the opposite of children. Children should be seen and not heard. All right, so uh, what we're seeing is uh, the Jews as adult children hide their affiliations with these, well, what's blatantly be call, being called in this article a, a race, race, white racist group, but that's not the case because... Mm-hmm. Uh, Rhodes was simply a bagman for the Rothschilds, and all of these secret societies are all bagmen for the Rothschilds and the Zionists. And uh, the, yeah. the Zionists are the ones who call the shots, and, and the white bagmen dance to the tune. That's the reality of what we're, you know, what we're dealing with here. So uh, it's not true uh, what this guy is saying in his article, that this is a white supremacist organization. It only is on the outside. Let me continue. In February of 1891, Cecil Rhodes met with William T. Stead and Reginald Balliol Brett. Stead was a famous British journalist of the day. Brett, a friend and confidant of Queen Victoria and influential advisor of King George V. Now, let me ask you a question. Who was Queen Victoria's main advisor through most of her career, especially the British imperial days. Do you remember who that person uh, was? Pastor, what I do know is that um, the, uh, her, her um, uh, uh, confidantes in South Africa had, were in particular Cecil John Rhodes, but he was, of course, reprimanded because of his Jamison invasion uh, right. excursion along with uh, the Cape Dutch Afrikaners. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it was Molna, Molna to a very large degree after his arrival in the Cape. Right, was, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rhodes passed the baton to Milner. But during this time, yeah. the, the, the chief advisor and the, uh, lord of, uh, the, the known lord of British imperialism was none other than Benjamin Disraeli, a Jew. Of course, yes. Okay, so it was uh, the Rothschilds and Disraeli who were calling the shots. They were Queen Victoria's chief advisors, the Bank of England and Benjamin Disraeli. Okay, so the this now, author does not mention these Jews, but over to you. Yes, something that must also be borne in mind, Pastor, is that um, Jan Smuts, this uh, a proto-Jew who was, of course, the Trojan horse, uh, that was uh, introduced amongst the Boers, uh, along with Louis Boerta, the, the proto-Jews um, Afrikaners. Uh, Jan Smuts and Benjamin Disraeli were, were very close friends. In fact, uh, the um, inauguration of the State of Israel in 1948 was attended by none other than Jan Smuts himself. He first went to England. He met with the Queen of England at the time, and he, uh, from there he set off to um, Israel to uh, witness uh, part of his doing, being one of the uh, co-signatories to the um, 
the 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 uh, Balfour Declaration. So Jan mm -hmm. uh, was Jan was totally in with the Jews. In fact, Jan was also uh, when he died, he was also buried with full Jewish ritual. Oh, really? Wow! Even <laughs> with his yarmulke. <laughs> okay. So it okay, is okay. His beanie. Well, He's a beanie boy. Oh, well, I see. This, this is this is one of the clear indications as to how close the Cape of Dutch Afrikaners in their heritage and the uh, ancestry is to the Jews. Right. Uh, they come out of the same stock. That is why the uh, Jews were were so uh, befriended by the Cape Dutch Afrikaners. Why they were so catered for by the Cape Dutch Afrikaners, and unfortunately, why they also. Uh, the, why the Jews made such inroads with the Boers at the time, such as President Paul Kruger. Right. Because President Paul Kruger was uh, was so befriended by Sammy Marx and by um, Bite, the, the, the Bite, Alfred Bite, Bite yeah. and his Yeah, his Jewish multimillionaires, Jewish multimillionaires. Okay. Yes. Uh, so uh, this article ignores the Jewish presence behind the scenes here and argues, and this is by design, it's called the Anglo-American Establishment. But it's really not owned by Anglos. It's run by Anglos for public consumption, but it is financed by Zionists and other Jews. This is what people yeah. have to understand, okay? And Benjamin Disraeli... A Jew was Queen Victoria's chief advisor in these days. Back to you. Uh, the other thing that must also be remembered is that uh, with the Second Anglo-Boer War, uh, the British were none other than uh, mercenaries, mercenary fighters against the Boers. Right. And of course, they were they were uh, paid for by the the. Of, of course, the Cape Dutch Afrikaners wanted the Boers to be subjugated. Um, genocide was the first priority, but that would have made it uh, very difficult for them uh, in terms of a subsequent or the post-Union uh, uh, era to find uh, acceptance across the globe. So, right. they, so they didn't fully genocide the Boers. What they did do is they assimilated or forcibly had the Boers to be assimilated as Afrikaners right. for the for the purpose of uh, hijacking the Boers' history. Right. Well, isn't and it also the case? It, yes. Isn't it also the case that they required Boer labor and Boer farming expertise, which the Cape uh, Dutch? Go ahead. After the after the unification of the of, of course with the um, uh, scorched earth policy, where forty two thousand uh, Boer farm farmsteads. Was, were torched and uh, uh, raised to the ground, along with uh, millions and millions of uh, hectares or acres of um, uh, cultivar, uh, cult, you, you know, uh, uh, farmland, the, cultivatable farmland, farmland yeah. mm -hmm. uh, that that stood on on uh, that was during the second part of the war, and of course millions of head of uh, livestock was also. Uh, uh, um, uh, killed off in that period, mm. destroyed in that period, right? Uh, and um, uh, quite a, or many of the Cape Dutch Afrikaners would actually go and rob and steal uh, the the livestock and uh, the cattle 
from the farms um, that had been vacated, that where, where the the women and children had been removed from the farms, the uh, quite a number of Cape Dutch Afrikaners rewarded themselves with the, uh, of course, with the livestock of the the, bo- right. the Boers, and they would sell these off to the um, the the British garrisons. Right. So the Cape Dutch. The Cape Dutch Afrikaners were the, the, the I've said this middlemen, before. That they, the middlemen, <laughs> the Jewish middlemen, who but, stole the goods were, from the Boers and sold it to the British. The, they were they were two losers in the uh, Anglo-Boer Wars and two winners. The two winners were the international Jewish cartels such as uh, Anglo-American and uh, the Rothschilds. And, uh, of course, the Cape Dutch Afrikaners, having had the Boers subjugated, they had um, the, the Boers removed from their farms. The, uh, Jan Smuts had mm-hmm. dis, in, uh, disowned uh, so many, without compensation, so, uh, so thousands upon thousands of Boers from their farms. And the Boer republics were flooded by the Cape Dutch that had participated in the um, uh, genocide against the Boers. Sounds, uh, like the Jewish carpet, sounds like the Jewish carpet baggers right after the Civil War here. The same thing. Yeah, please continue. The, the modus operandi does not change. It only changes on the, on the basis of uh, the names of those that actually executed. Now, the British and the Boers were the losers because they were the ones that uh, were doing the fighting. The Cape Dutch Afrikaners ended up with the Boers being subjugated and cheap labor and well-educated uh, labor and reliable labor up to the point where the, um, the, the so-called mining houses decided to import foreign blacks to do the, um, the, the, the labor work in the mines because they could do it cheaper. Or they right. intended to do it cheaper by laying off the white farmers or the Boers Mm-hmm. And uh, employing dispossessing them and then disenfranchising them on top of that, yeah, exactly. Now well, okay. that reduced that that reduced the Boers to beggars, right? And uh, now one must also remember they the the Boers were then out of their farms. They had gone through a a, a period of war where they had lost their women and children. Uh, they were fighting for a period of three years. They had basically lost everything. Now they lost their work. They ended up in what was then called the rebellion, rebellion when they heard that they were now to go and fight against what was their hinterland, the Germans. Now, that rebellion was not as the Cape Dutch Afrikaners have been propagating and advertising under their brainwashing ideologies uh, because <clears throat> because they, they say that this rebellion was because of the Boers that they did not want to go and fight on the side of the British which was not the case. It contributed to it but they were they realized that they were done out of their republics, they were done out of their farms. So it was actually orchestrated in um, synchronization with the uh, Jan Smuts declaring that uh, South Africa would fight on the British side if a war should break out mm-hmm. because the rebellion was prior to the announcement or prior to the breakout of the uh, First World War. 
So it wasn't merely the fact that the, the uh, Boers did not want to go and fight against the Germans. It was a matter of fact that they had re realized that they were being uh, 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 exploited. Uh, uh, exploited, but they had also been uh, uh, lied to, deceived right. during the Union con Conventions. Mm -hmm. Now, I've got a copy of that Union convention, uh, Convention, <laughs> Pastor, which okay. was from 1999. And right from the outset, the very first line to the foreword to this this book. Now, the book was written by Francois um, Stephanus Malon. Francois Stephanus Malon was a fifth generation um, Malon that came to South Africa or came to the Cape um, during the persecution in Europe. However, if one goes into the detail, you will find that his, his predecessors, his ancestors, were Freemasons. He himself was a Freemason. He was a member of Onse um, Jan Hofmeyer's Afrikaner Bond. Now, remember we've said that the Afrikaner Bond was one of the uh, major parties to the uh, setting up the, the uh, ignition, the igniting of the, uh, the, the British uh, uh, into the the war, the Second uh, Anglo-Boer War. And with uh, what I also wanted to say is that uh, this uh, Afrikaner bomb, uh, one can read up about the, the contributions that the Afrikaner bomb made as well as the, the uh, uh, conspirators to the uh, formation of the Afrikaner bomb, or rather to the uh, uh, enticement of the British into the war against the Boers. Now, what I wanted to say about Francois Stefanus Malan is that the very first sentence in the foreword to this book was that this book, this writings by Francois Stefanus Malan, it was the di daily record or the diary of events that occurred during this convention. Okay. There was a period of nearly 40 years that lapsed and the very first line says that it was decided to now uh, give a, a, a um, to, to make this book publicly known after 40 years it was only released for public insight nearly 40 years after the actual event of the year. Now the right. question that I'm asking why did it take 40 years for such an in uh, such an important event in the history of South Africa. Why did it take 40 mm -hmm. years before the diary of this was released for public knowledge? Right. Because, and I read about 10 or 12 or 15 pages into the book, and Pastor, what you read in that book is a, a conspiracy cut out every page. You can right. read the conspiracy and I'll okay. talk about that at the later stage. But, okay, uh, it's, it's uh, quick question. Quick question. Is that book available? Yeah. Uh, give us uh, uh, the, the title again and the author. Uh, Pastor, the book, um, the book's name is uh, that, um, let me just get hold of the book. I've got a hard copy of it. I've been trying to find a copy All of right. it in PDF okay. form, in electronic form on the internet. I've been unable to do so. Okay. Uh, it would be the ideal thing to to actually work through this book. In fact, I'm, I I also started a Facebook group called 
by the same name as the book. It's called The Convention Diary, but it's in Afrikaans. The Conventie Dagboek van sy edelachtbare Francois Stefanus Milan. So it is The Convention Diary, 1980-99, of okay. the Honorable Francois Stefanus Milan. Now, one of the things that he states in this book, over and about the fact that this book was only published 40 years, or close to 40 years after the the um, right. actual convention, uh, because the book was published in 1951, and with the the uh, convention being in 19, the end of 1908 and beginning of 1909, right. it means that uh, this book appeared only... Um, more than 40 years later. Right. Okay, now, and Milan, Milan the, is spelled M-I-L-A-N, Milan? Or is there a different no, spelling? M-I-L-A-N. M-A-L-A-N, Milan. Okay, That's right. back to you. All right. Now, now um, over and above this, it, it was decided, uh, Pastor, it sounds like it's raining again. We've, we, 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 <laughs> Uh, I'm so glad about this because we haven't had rain. Uh, this will be the third time it rains in the past four months that we've been here. Wow, wow. And it's extremely dry in uh, this whole region okay. where we currently live in. Well, uh, now, yeah. what I want to <laughs> okay. You know I bring rain wherever I go. <laughs> so maybe we should Wonderful. have more calls. Back to you. Go ahead. Um, the, the other thing that I wanted to say, in this book that I've read, um, I, and I've mentioned it on this program before. Uh, the so-called representatives of the Boer republics was none other than the uh, Jew, Cape Dutch Afrikaner, Freemason, atheist, Trojan horse, proto-Jew, Jan Smuts and Louis Boerta. Okay. Now those were two Boerta. Cape Dutch Afrikaners that had uh, been... It, it just shows you what they are willing to do to achieve their aims. Right. They went in a three-year war with the Boers. However, their horses were marked and they were were advertised. These two individuals, General the Boer General Milan and Boer General Smuts, had marked horses. And they were told by both sides, the soldiers were told, don't fire or don't aim at this man with on that horse because he is our man. Mm -hmm. so that was on both sides. So he, they knew that they were going into a, a, a battle without, uh, with, with a far lesser degree of being uh, uh, in, in the sights of, Shot, right. in the sights of, of the uh, whoever's Whoever might, have, uh, yeah, with, with, whichever side it was, didn't matter. You know, they were exactly. Uh, no, it, it's a pity. It's a pity that the Boers did not know the the because the Boers have been uh, brainwashed for so many generations. At this stage, uh, nine generations, but at that stage, it was six generations of brainwashing uh, of. Uh, a forced assimilation to be uh, like Afrikaners, forced assimilation into the Afrikaner churches, uh, forced assimilation into, uh, well, by the Cape Dutch, the Afrikaner bond. So the Boers believed that they were also Afrikaners, or many Boers believed that they were also Afrikaners. Because right. uh, uh, th th there are many occasions where 
uh, of the the books that I've read of written by Boers, mm-hmm. even by Boer generals that were fighting in the battles uh, of the Second Anglo-Boer War, where they write about themselves and talking about themselves as Afrikaners, and that means that they had been uh, brainwashed or mentally bullied into belief that they were Afrikaners. Right. Right. Okay. So, so you can see how this how this brainwashing had actually taken effect to the point where they saw themselves as Afrikaners because the others were Cape Dutch. Mm-hmm. So the Cape Dutch became the Afrikaners, and they made the Boers believe that they were also Afrikaners. Right. And right. and for that reason, the Boers have totally lost their uh, identity. You know, <laughs> their identity. Their right. identity. Uh-huh. Absolutely, the Boers have an identity crisis at this stage. Yeah, because like we do. I wonder. <laughs> like, uh, yes. I wonder if if four percent of the Boers, and this I mean the true descendants of the House of Jacob, who came to South Africa as uh, uh, people fleeing Europe because of their non-acceptance of the Pope as the uh, oracle of Father Yahweh, and also not associating with the so-called church reformation. They right. refused both. Mm-hmm. So they were persecuted for that reason. Right. Now, at the, right. Time, at the time when they came to the Cape, they, and, and I mentioned this before, they, they weren't married in front of uh, Dominis and they didn't have marriage certificates. Right. So the Dutch East Indian Company regarded them as living in sin and <laughs> not being married. Right. So, right. okay, and, and that they that that their children and even their grandchildren were illegitimate. Right. So, so but they were smart. actually married according to biblical principles, not church exactly. principles. Yeah, so the Boer exactly. people were actually again uh, true Israelites practicing biblical principles, and the churches were anti. Biblical, in fact, Antichrist, as we know today. But let's get back well, here because you, you mentioned uh, 1908, 1909, and you know we're talking about the Cecil Rhodes. The Cecil Rhodes was the in- real instigator for all of these anti-Boer activities, and he created the Roundtable groups, and it was uh, Lord yes. Alfred Milner to whom uh, Cecil Rhodes passed the baton of leadership of the roundtable groups. Let's continue here. By 1910, the Secret Society of Cecil Rhodes would achieve the Union of South Africa, which you just described, and was done by deceit. And the book that uh, reveals the deceit, which is only published 40 years later. The billions upon billions... Yes, okay. Sorry, Uh, if I can just interrupt... Uh, it's a very important uh, sentence that you've just read. Okay. By 1910, the secret society of Cecil Rhodes would achieve the Union of South Africa. It is very clear that there was a conspiracy upon conspiracy and agenda upon agenda to get the Union of South Africa for the simple reason of totally marginalizing the Boers out of their inheritance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, guess what? How about the European Union? Wouldn't exactly. That be, isn't that the same thing, to marginalize the whites of Europe and uh, have them being taken over by third world you know, immigrants? 
and the United States of America. Yes, yeah, we're we're importing non-whites into our countries thanks to these same globalists, you know, run by Jews, with Jews pulling the strings in the background. Let let me continue here. The billions upon billions of dollars derived from South African gold and diamonds would be used to fund the secret society's work. That work would be to repeat on a global scale what it had just accomplished in South Africa. And so we just talked about that, how it is now today being repeated on a global scale, especially in Europe, America, now New Zealand and Australia. All of the formerly white-owned or white-run countries are now run from behind the scenes by billionaire Jews and their Shabazz Goy puppets like Cecil Rhodes. Okay, now I'm going to read the highlighted sentence here. These groups can only be stopped by exposing the role they play in the psychopolitical operations they plan and sponsor and showing people how they are being manipulated and exploited. One way to learn about these groups is to study material published by organization members and insiders. And they do have their in-house publications, which are available uh, for the most part to the general public, but most people aren't interested in reading this stuff. Okay, it yeah. tends to be very dry reading, but you can you can read about their plans in these journals, and you, you can assume that they have good intentions, but they do not. Okay, let me just read the, the next. Thing, Go ahead. The other thing that uh, must also be remembered is the negative connotation to so-called conspiracy right. theories. <laughs> right, exactly. But it's also it is of great significance that. What had been conspiracy theories or regarded or labeled as conspiracy theories 10 and 15 and 20 years ago uh, have become conspiracy facts. That's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, He goes on to say, Walter Lippmann was a famous journalist, member of America's first intelligence organization, The Inquiry. He attended the Paris Peace Conference after World War I and was a founding father of the Secret Society's American branch, the Council on Foreign Relations. Lippmann clearly explained the way the Secret Society works. Central to Lippmann's strategy of achieving government and international relations policy aims were large-scale psychopolitical operations aimed at the masses. The early work of Lippmann and another leading pioneer in the field of psychological warfare, Harold Laswell, were funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, and they are affiliated with the Rothschilds. Not coincidentally, the government's national security campaigns usually overlap the commercial ambitions of Council on Foreign Relations and Institute of International Affairs Controlled Industries. The Carnegie Corporation and Ford Foundation were principal secondary sources of large-scale communication research funding, operating in close coordination with government propaganda and intelligence programs. And I would throw in the Tavistock Institute, uh, located in London, and you must have similar organizations besides the Freemasons in South Africa. Exactly, Pastor. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you, you can... Uh, I've, I've got a... Uh, uh, um, a testimony to that the uh, Cape Dutch Africana organizations, um, in fact, the one is a branch of the other one, the one is called Solidarity. It uh, started off as the Mine Workers Union representing the Boers and purporting to be the representatives of a labor organization or a labor a trade union for the 
white or the Boer miners. Okay. And that has that organization has been hijacked by these Cape Dutch Afrikaners to the extent where uh, their ancillary organization, which we have spoken about quite a number of occasions, called Afri Forum. Okay. Afri Forum is one of the ma major contributors to organizations which are also funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, uh -huh. also funded by the Oppenheimer Foundation, also um, funded by the De Beers organization and right. also funded by George Soros. Right. So the last three are clearly Jews <laughs> and the Rockefellers, if not Jewish, working closely with them. Right. So now we're getting to the to the uh, uh, the uh, Edomite, the Edomite connection to these international organizations, Correct. you know, which this article it, it has up to this point left out. But let, let me read the next sentence here, the next paragraph. The inquiry was America's first central intelligence agency. The Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter, who was a Jew, and Woodrow Wilson's close political advisor and friend Edward Mandel House, another Jew, suggested the idea to Wilson. House became the inquiry's first director. Lipman was House's first recruit. The existence of the inquiry is such a well-kept secret that to this day hardly any Americans have heard of the inquiry or are aware that it ever existed. Wilson paid for the inquiry from the President's Fund for National Safety and Defense. He directed that it not be housed in Washington. A remote room in the New York Public Library was its first office. Later, it moved it to the offices of the American Geographical Society at West 155th Street and Broadway, housed in, oh, sorry, at Broadway, period. James T. Shotwell, a Columbia University historian and an early recruit, came up with the agency name The Inquiry, which he said would be a blind, would be a blind to the general public but would serve to identify it among the initiated. Okay, this is how the inquiry is kind of a password for them. Incidentally, yeah. the Council on Foreign Relations, which is part of this operation, they, their Chicago head, headquarters at 1313 55th Street, I believe it is. Okay, they, they picked yeah. a nice round number, 1313. All right, yeah. so, okay, and just to finish this sentence, uh, this paragraph, Shotwell probably chose the name because the word history is derived from the Greek word meaning a learning by inquiry. Ironically, the inquiry would use psychological warfare techniques to warp history by stressing favorable and unfavorable truths and leaving out facts completely to shape public opinion to support inquiry goals. So here we see this is the modus operandi of the Rothschilds using Shabazz Goy puppets to direct their affairs and putting a white face on the conspiracy uh, and you know just like our white uh, radio and television yeah, announcers you know okay. oh yes of course yeah, yeah back yes. to you back to you well pastor that is the modus operandi they like to have the uh, well in south africa they like now to have uh, blacks as the puppets because blacks are easier to motivate right <laughs> and also easier to, <laughs> yeah, right. to manipulate uh, and uh, and of course the qualities that they also uh, that they also have that are easier to have them to uh, entice them into for example mass killings and mass murders etc very similar to the the uh, 
a Muslim, so the um, uh, the the Arabs, mm -hmm. because the Arabs, you, you can see that, Pastor, I'm, I'm tempted to say things here that I would rather not say on the okay, radio, but well. uh, can I can I briefly just say it like this? Uh, they like the more recent modus operandi is to utilize and entice people without conscience right. into positions of power where they uh, have um, a support from the masses. That, that is in South Africa, people without conscience because uh, what they cannot steal, they break. Yeah, yeah. So these people are pretty on the outside, but ruthless on the inside. <laughs> I yes, think we can suffice it to put it that way. And they make very yeah. good puppets for the international Jew. All right. Exactly. And that's what all these organizations are. And Freemasons are a prime example of that. Okay. And these yeah. other, now these, these organizations, we're talking about the Council on Foreign Relations, the Inquiry, the Roundtable Groups. These are all... Nothing but puppet organizations of the international Jew. They cannot be understood any other way. That's what they are. Front okay. organizations. Yeah, they're front organizations. And so yeah. it, it continues here. Uh, the inquiry and its members wrote most of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. Many of the members of the inquiry and the U.S. State Department delegates at the Paris Peace Conference belong to the American branch of the Rhodes Secret Society. At the Paris Peace Conference, they would trade off most of the 14 points to establish a League of Nations. Okay. And young Smuts was, yeah, young just Smuts was also one of the conspirators to that. that. That's right. So the 14 points were simply a, how should I put it, a, a script to uh, give the Paris Peace Conference a glowing uh, report or a glowing enticement to the world of say with these 14 points we're going to end all wars okay yeah. but it was really to establish the league of nations which was totally controlled by jews totally exactly. controlled by jews every delegation from uh, france uh, britain america uh, even germany to the extent that it was represented had uh, jew-run delegations and the Zionists had their own delegation to the League of yeah. Nations. Who were they? They didn't even have a country. How did they get a, yeah. a, a seat at the table? Well, because the whole thing was run by Jews. Yeah, back to you. Shame it were the 22 that survived the 6 million uh, Jew genocide of the, yeah, <laughs> the right. German Right. Yeah, even, even they had a table at the United Nations. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> they were crawling out of the woodwork. Uh, so, yeah. so uh, it continues. After the conference, they would attend the meeting at the Hotel Majestic and become the founding fathers on the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the, the American branch. Woodrow Wilson yeah. caught on to the betrayal and was so upset that he suffered a stroke and refused to speak to Edward Mandel House ever again. Wow. 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 That's okay. quite a revelation. That is. That is. So, Woodrow Wilson realized that he had been duped by House, who was Rothschild's first lieutenant here in America. Yeah. Right? Yeah. House was a Jew working for the Rothschilds. And, yeah, the, uh, the failure of the 14 points... 
was Woodrow Wilson's biggest disappointment? Biggest well, disappointment. was it the, the was it the failure of the 14 points or the hijacking of the 14 points? Yeah, well, the hijack, yeah. I mean, the, the 14 points were merely public discussion points that uh, people would say, oh, yeah, this is really good. Yeah, this should, this should be Im- implemented. But it never was. It was never intended to be implemented. It was just propaganda. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. The American people didn't want to belong to an organization that could force them to go to war because it was called the uh, the League to Enforce Peace. That was the original name, yeah. not the League of Nations. It was originally called the League to Enforce Peace, all right? And you know, exactly. well, enforce that means war. We get war, exactly. we get peace by going to war and would be turned into an international police force. Now we have it with the United Nations. America would never join the League of Nations. Okay? Oh, so that's this, exactly what... Yeah, go ahead. It's exactly what you have with the United Nations today, is that the um, America, along with the so-called allied uh, nations, have become the so-called police of the world, and they that's are right. devastating the peace in the world. They have devastated, decimated peace in the Middle East to the point where millions of uh, uh, people who had their lives disrupted up, up, yes, up, disrupted and upheavaled uh, are now uh, uh, dwarfing. Yeah, refugees. Dwarfing. Yeah, they become the very but, but, refugees that are swarming into Europe. So well, the, I wanted to say they, they're dwarfing the, the, the white uh, populations of the uh, overwhelming nations. Yes. Absolutely. Overwhelming us. All right, he continues. The British were informed of the work of the inquiry through Sir William Wiseman. Wiseman reported to Lord Robert Cecil of the Foreign Office. Lord Robert Cecil was a member of the British branch of Rhodes Secret Society. Lord Robert Cecil was a member of Parliament, Parliamentary Under Secretary of Foreign Affairs, Assistant Secretary for Foreign Affairs, Lord Privy Seal and Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. So Lord Robert Cecil was a big muckety-muck. Uh, he was one of the original drafters <laughs> of the Covenant of the League of Nations and was the Englishman most closely associated in the public mind with the work of the League. For this work, he received the Nobel Prize in 1937. So you see, internationalism no. and the power of the international elite is the real aim here while they hold all these national titles right yeah they're really so they're getting paid yeah they're getting ahead. paid by the they're getting paid by the very people whom they are busy working on the downfall of and oppressing and also undermining mm-hmm. yeah they they've claimed to represent the people but they're really working for the international banksters that's how it works folks yeah. In explaining his role, Wiseman said, quote, It is, as you know, my chief duty here to keep in closest touch with House and this organization of his, Colonel Mandel House, the manipulator of Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Wiseman urged the British Foreign Secretary to allow him to convey intelligence collected by the British Foreign Office to Edward House. Quote, it must be clear to you, he told Balfour's secretary, that when in New York, I occupy practically the position of political secretary to House. 
I think he no. shows me everything he gets, and together we discuss every question that arises, unquote. So you see that these people, House being the main operative of the Rothschilds, and he was House was the one giving all the orders. In fact, I, exactly. can, I, I can relate to you that uh, according to other publications, there were times where Colonel House actually told Woodrow Wilson to leave the room while he conferred with the, uh, with the European dignitaries. He didn't even want Wilson to know. Wilson was simply a functionary uh, whose presence was nothing but stage prop. That's what Woodrow yeah. Wilson was. And this is why Woodrow Wilson felt, uh, you know, was so greatly disappointed with the, uh, with the events of the Paris Peace Conference. He was really a yeah. non-entity. He was just for public display, just like the journalists that we see at Fox and CNN, ABC, etc. They're simply puppets yeah. put out in the public. They're meaningless. Yeah. They have nothing to offer. All they do is read the script and perform according to the script. So, with Balfour's consent, Wiseman placed his own personal representative with the British Office Political Intelligence Department to keep him informed of the work of the British peace planners. Wiseman influenced the work of the inquiry. Wiseman, he's obviously a Jew. Wiseman presented yeah. the British case for retaining Germany's African colonies after the war to the inquiry specialist on African co colonial affairs, George L. Beer. Okay. Uh, so what do you know about this guy, George L. Beer? A uh, pastor uh, from South African history that I have... Uh... Uh, researched. Uh, it's the first time that uh, his name actually uh, surfaces. Okay. Uh, I I see that um, uh, in in that reference, uh, the footnote to that, he uh, refers to George Louis Beer. Um, he says that uh, the, on this whole section, see George Louis Beer in the Round Table, September 1920. So it seems as if uh, Beer was a South African or Cape Dutch Afrikaner, which was uh, uh, also um, privy to the uh, information which is uh, that you've mentioned about House. Okay, right. So House was the chief instigator, the chief Rothschild agent, bringing all of these people together, secretly plotting and planning a, a one world government. Okay. And George L. Beer apparently was, uh, it says here, specialist on African colonial affairs. But, uh, you know, I was just wondering if he was a South African or not. Anyway, it says here, George L. Beer was a member of the Rhodes Secret Society's inner circle. The Secret Society would, be, would use Beer to establish a mandate system for the territories taken from enemy powers as a result of the First World War. Okay, so Germany did have African colonies. One was Southwest Africa, correct? Southwest, yep. okay. And so the Boer people supported Southwest Africa, and Southwest Africa supported the Boer people against the British and the internationalists. In times of war, is that correct? That's correct, Pastor. That's correct. In okay. fact, uh, go ahead. Uh, when we spoke about Sina uh, von Rensburg, the Boer prophet, Sina uh, von Rensburg also prophesied that in this uh, coming uh, Holocaust, 
which is bending um, right. or which is looming, which is looming over looming. our heads, right? Well, which is looming in, in particular in South Africa and in particular against the Boers. Remember the um, president singing, kill a farmer, kill the Boer, bring my machine gun, uh, let's make war against the Boers. Right. Um, during this uh, tremendous or the, during the outfall of this um uh, Sina von Rensburg, of course, also prophesied about uh, German warships coming to one of the harbors and uh, uh, providing sustenance for the Boers. Now, Sina von Rensburg also prophesied about the railway line from uh, this particular harbor. I'm not going to mention it, but this harbor is also the German Southwest Africa and the railway line was only completed about two years or three years ago and uh, reopened after oh. many years of disuse. Hmm. So the okay. railway lines have been brought into place. Uh, Sina van Rensburg mentioned this railway line being reopened. He mentioned really? about, uh, okay. yes, it's, it, it is recorded in, in his prophecies and uh, also... Uh, I've spoken to uh, German friends uh, a few years ago who stated when I mentioned about uh, the uh, undertaking or the uh, the tract that was drafted between, uh, and you will remember, uh, General Marnie Maritz. Right. We, we visited his son, Marnie Maritz, but General Marnie Maritz uh, drafted a, uh, a contract with the Germans and that was also signed by the Germans, and uh, the Germans have actually indicated recently that they still honor that contract. Very good, very good. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, Sina von Rendsburg actually predicted that Germany would uh, ultimately come to defend the Boer people in, the, in this yes. chaotic period, which is very interesting. <laughs> very in Now, we can see that with the uh, elimination of uh, that uh, Eastern European woman, uh, what's her name? <laughs> I forget. Uh, she she resigned. Okay. Oh, you and, you're talking about that uh, evil woman yeah. called. Uh, yeah. You're, uh, yeah. Let's forget about yeah, her. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Angela Merkel. Angela Merkel. Ang right. Angela, Angela Merkel. Right. Yeah. So uh, Germany is turning decidedly to the right, as is all of Europe. The white people of Europe are beginning to smell a up. Jewish rat. They're beginning to wake up to the uh, orchestrated destruction of Europe by uh, you know, financing immigration from third world countries, you know, an attack. This yeah. is an invasion, not immigration. And they're beginning to realize yeah. this. OK, so Angola is gone. We have hopes of a right wing nationalist Germany emerging as it is as in Sweden and in Italy, Poland, Hungary, we have right-wing nationalist regimes coming out of the woodwork now, opposing yeah. the UN and opposing the European Union. So uh, this prophecy by uh, van Rensburg looks possible now. Yes, and uh, he also predicted World War III. Mm -hmm. And the victors out of World War Three, um, he prophesied, would be Germany. Okay, very good. I like the sound of very that. Very good. <laughs> but yeah. not Angela Merkel's Germany, 
this right-wing nationalist Germany that's uh, getting ready to emerge. We can only pray that this is what develops, okay? So very interesting, yeah. okay? Uh, all right, so we, uh, we have about uh, eight minutes left. Uh, with, pa- with Balfour's consent, Wiseman placed his own personal representative with the British Foreign Office Political Intelligence Department, and this is George L. Beer. George L. Beer was a member of the Road Secret Society's inner circle. Carol Quigley would write that that Beer established a mandate system for the territories. Quote, Beer was first suggested, no, the mandate was first suggested by George Lewis Beer in a report submitted to the United States government on 1 January 1918 and by Lionel Curtis in an article called, quote, Windows of Freedom, unquote, in the Roundtable for December 1918. Beer was a member of the Roundtable group from about 1912 and was, in fact, the first member who was not a British subject. I'm wondering you know, what what was his uh, nationality. That Beer I, was... I have... Go ahead. I've reason to be, Pastor. I've re, um, I've reason to believe that he was a South African because it would most probably be also the basis for the Rothschilds, De Beers Mining House. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Very good. That Beer was a member of the group was revealed in the obituary published in the Roundtable for September 1920. So his name and memory have been suppressed, as was the name and memory of many of these others who were Roundtable conspirators, right? Okay. All right. So this is what's going on, folks. Um, The group's attention was first attracted to beer by a series of Anglophile studies on the British Empire in the 18th century, which he published in the period after 1893. A Germanophobe, that means someone who hates Germans, as well as an Anglophile, someone who uh, loves the British, he intended by writing if we are to believe the round table, to counteract the falsehoods about British colonial policy to be found in the manuals used in American primary schools. So I think at this point in time, the American primary schools were telling the truth about the British colonial policy around the world, wouldn't you think? Absolutely. That's why it became an issue with them. Yes. Yeah. So the American schools were teaching the truth about British uh, Jewish funded secret societies. And his purpose was to counteract the truth with propaganda. When the roundtable group about 1911 began to study the causes of the American Revolution, they wrote to Beer and thus began a close and sympathetic relationship. So this goes all the way back to British uh, bad blood, bad feeling about the American Revolution. He wrote the reports on the United States in the roundtable for many years, and his influence is clearly evident in Curtis's The Commonwealth of Nations. He gave a hint of the existence of the Milner Group, Road Secret Society, in an article which he wrote for the Political Science Quarterly of June 1915 on Milner. And this is, uh, this is what I was hoping to get into, uh, Lord Alfred Milner and his status in the roundtable groups. So with only about four minutes left, I'll, I'll end my quotation here, pick it up next time. So who was Lord Alfred Milner from the South African perspective in, with about four minutes left? Uh, Pastor, he was, um, uh, as you can recall, 
Lord Roberts was in charge of the uh, British uh, forces in South Africa uh, because they had uh, actually set up garrisons throughout South Africa to not just uh, curb the Boers' activities, but also to enforce um, the, the presence uh, within the, the Boer lines. And uh, uh, he was uh, su succeeded by, uh, uh, Lord Roberts was succeeded after the signing of the, uh, of the peace treaty by uh, um, Lord Milner. Okay. Uh, Lord Milner was also one of the co-conspirators against the Boers in terms of the 1998-99 um, convention because his name actually appears very often. And so also was uh, Merriman, um, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, uh, who had become the Cape or the, the governor of the Cape on foreign on behalf of the British Parliament. So the Cape was a colony, and uh, after the formation, even after the formation of the Union of South Africa, uh, the Union of South Africa was still seen as a colony of the the British, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, uh, was merely an extension of the British. Uh, and, and for that reason, to hide the fact that it's a colony, uh, they only changed the name and became part of the so-called Commonwealth. Commonwealth still meant exactly what colony is. It became, it was a colony. Right. right. And... The, the sad thing, if I can perhaps uh, just mention at this point, Pastor, the sad thing is in 1960, under Resolution 1514 of uh, 1960 by the Security Council of the, uh, the, the uh, United Nations, all the countries that had lost, or the people of the countries who had lost the control of the countries because of colonialism and because of uh, colonization by these countries uh, in Europe, uh, had to obtain, they had a certain period of time during which they had to uh, relinquish, the colonists had to relinquish control of those countries back to the original owners or the original uh, uh, population of those, those countries. However, the Boer republics were then hijacked by Verwoerd mm -hmm. into a, what then became the Republic of South Africa, which is by, by the closest terms, not a a republic, but the force of a republic. It was a force of an uh, illegal union, and it mm -hmm. became a force of a illegal republic. Right. Okay. So, uh, for uh, our next show, uh, if the, if you could maybe get some select quotes from the convention diary by Francois Milan, because you say it's only in Afrikaans, correct? Not in English. Uh, it, it, uh, the, the pastor, uh, that particular. Uh, piece that I had read was only in Afrikaans. Okay. However, the rest of the book is page by pages. Uh, it appears in, in Dutch and also in English. Okay, also so in I will English. Be, okay. Uh, that's right. So I will actually uh, take uh, make screenshots or s snapshots of uh, issues that might be of great importance to our discussion uh, Yes. Uh, on All next right. Sunday night. 
Okay. All right. Very good. All right. So we're just about out of time. So thank you, Pastor Martins. Uh, this, uh, thank you, know, you Pastor. We're, we're revealing how the international Jew really operates with Goy, Shabbos, Goy operatives, dangling them in front of our faces. And we think they're good people when, in fact, they are our worst enemies. All right. Thanks, thanks again. And we'll talk to you next time, Pastor Martins. Excellent. Thank you, Pastor. Right. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Okay, folks, that's today's show. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. See you next time. We-